We'll turn to 1 Corinthians 16. We will be finishing this book this morning that we started way back last September. So we've been spending, we've spent now 11 months walking verse by verse through this book, and it comes to a conclusion today. So in a moment, we'll start reading in verse 13. You can turn there. If you need a Bible, they're under the chairs in front of you. We have some scattered around. And you'll find 1 Corinthians 16 on page 1,154. I encourage you to open it. Have it open as we talk through it together. Eleven months ago when we began, we looked at the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians. And I want to kind of go back to what we saw at the very beginning. Because what we saw at the very beginning was a description of this local church, the church of Corinth, and principles that applied not just to that local church, but to, but to every local church. We saw there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, it was written to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Uh, church just literally means uh, assembly. So at the most basic, it is an assembly of believers who gather together. And it's a church of God. It is God's church. It's not my church. It's not your church. There's a sense in which it's kind of ours collectively, but in the ultimate sense, it is God's. And so what God says about the church is what is most important about any given church. To the church of God, which is at Corinth. It's a particular local body addressing local issues, and yet those same issues apply to today. I have a friend who, when he reads from 1 Corinthians, he kind of always refers to it as first Americans, right? And then he gets to it because there's issues in Corinth that are issues today. There's a local church, but principles that continue on. Church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. The church is an assembly. That's what the term means. It's God's assembly. And it's specifically an assembly of those who are called, who have been called to him, who have trusted in him. He has drawn them. They have responded in faith. That's what makes them saints. That's what makes you a saint. So if you've trusted in Christ, you're sanctified, set apart to him. But notice it says, with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus. It's local, but it's global. Our church is local, but we're part of something much bigger. We're part of this body that is worldwide of all those who in every place call on the name of Christ. Those who are saved as well. Those who are trusting in Christ. So it began with this description. And it went on to talk about the faithfulness of God in the local church. A God who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, his assurance of his holding his people fast. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's an assurance of his faithfulness to his people. And from there it opened up into this rich, and sometimes challenging book. Some chapters were hard. Some passages were hard. And yet, it was part of God's faithful work in his local church and hopefully in our local church. And now we come to the end. And what will we find? Well, we'll find sort of what we might expect to find at the end of a letter. We'll find some closing comments. We'll find some greetings. We'll find some uh, just typical things. And yet we also find challenging command. Actually, five commands. Five commands that are brief that sort of wrap up what it is to be a well-rounded believer. 
We'll talk about those five commands in more detail, and then we'll kind of briefly hit some of those other things. Now, with that in mind, let's read. 1 Corinthians 16, we'll read verses 13 to the end of the chapter. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the firstfruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for the ministry of the saints, that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. Rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. I mentioned this last week when we began chapter 16 that there's a bit of a uh, disconnected feel to some of these verses as it's wrapping up. And so this message may sort of have that same feel, but we'll give the majority of our time to these first two verses because what we see there is this description of a well-rounded believer, well-rounded Christian conduct. Notice it gives five commands, five imperatives. Verse 4 in verse 13, and then one more in verse 14. And it's in these commands that we see what is to be a balance in the Christian life that is sometimes neglected. So let's walk through each of those. The first, it says, be on the alert. Notice that? That's the first command. Be on the alert. It literally means wake up, be alert, be in constant readiness. Uh, it, It would literally be kind of maybe what you might need to hear if if you're at an 8 a.m. class, so if you're a student here, you're at an 8 a.m. class, and you're there physically, but not like mentally, right? You're just barely awake. You're, you're in the seat, but you're not really paying attention. You're having a hard time understanding, and you might need somebody to say, hey, wake up, right? Hopefully, it's not the teacher that has to say wake up, but somebody says, wake up, and you're like, oh, and you can like pay attention and observe, or maybe for you, it's 2.30 in the afternoon, Lunch is sitting heavy on your stomach. You're back at your desk. You're working, and you're just getting drowsy. He says, wake up. That's literally the same term. Be on the alert. It means to be awake, watchful. Awake and watchful for what? Well, for danger. And in the New Testament, there's four different things, at least, that in different places it tells us to be on the alert for. And for the sake of time, we won't go through each of them in detail, but I'll put them up here in case you want to look up later. 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9 tells us to be alert and awake for the work of Satan. There's an evil one, an enemy, who wants to destroy God's people, and we need to be alert to that, aware of that. Mark 14, 38, Jesus tells his disciples to be alert, to be awake for temptation, to be aware that they might be tempted. Book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, he warns the church there to be alert because they've drifted into apathy and indifference. Drifted into that. And he says, 
Wake up. Be on the alert. Acts chapter 20, 29 to 31, warns about being on the alert for false teachers. For each of these, we need to be alert because it's not necessarily obvious. Right? Satan doesn't necessarily come with like a red suit and pointy horns. Right? Temptation doesn't kind of scream at us like that. It, it's gradual. Apathy sneaks up on us. False teachers might appear friendly and personable and good-looking, and we want to listen to them, but we find out there's, there's something wrong there. So we need to be on the alert, not just for what's obvious, but for what's maybe less obvious. Uh, my family, one of the things we like to do in the summer is, is go whitewater rafting, and whitewater rafting is great. It's relaxing until it's, until it's not anymore. And when that can particularly be the case is when the water's low, like it is this year, and there's rocks that are just under the surface, right? It's not the big rocks that you can see even from the road that are the trouble. It's, it's the ones that are just under the surface. We call those sleepers because the water goes over them, but the boat doesn't go over them, right? And so you have to be on the alert for those things. It's like with this. You have to be on the alert for things that might sneak up on us. He warns us, be on the alert. Uh, the next, he says, stand firm in the faith. The faith that we are to stand firm in is not talking about our personal trust. It's, it's a way to talk about like doctrine, teaching, truth. It's like when, when Jude uh, says, uh, contend for the faith. It's talking about contending for truth, for, for right doctrine. And he says here to the Corinthians, and then therefore to us, to stand firm in the faith, not drifting away from that. In this book, he's warned them about human philosophy and human wisdom that has the appearance of wisdom but is not in reality. We need to stand firm in the midst of that. There's always a danger of us drifting and not being alert towards that. So how do we do that? How do we stand firm? I want to look at a passage in Ephesians that talks about a similar thing. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, tells us, as a result, and in a moment we'll go back and see what this is a result from, but it says, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. It says we're not to be that. This is kind of another way of talking about being Firm, it's not being tossed around by the waves. You ever kind of feel like that? Like, man, I'm getting bombarded with so many things. I don't know what to believe, and I'm getting pulled around. That's not where we're to be. We're to stand firm. Well, well, what is it that we can do? If we want this result, how do we get there? Well, the verses right before this tell us how we can get this result. So I want to look at them now. Going back to verses 11 to 13 of Ephesians 4, it says, He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Says he's given these gifts, some, some of which that we've talked about have, have ceased, others have continued on, that are there to equip the saints. They're there to equip the body. These different gifts are there to equip the church. 
to do this building up work. So if we want the results of being firm, God uses, he uses you guys to do that. Do you get that? That's what it's saying. He says it, God gives different people to the church that have gifts to teach so we can get into the word so that the body can minister to one another so that we can not be children tossed to and fro, but we can be firm. So if we're going to obey this command in 1 Corinthians 16 to stand firm, we need each other to do that. We need the work of the body. We need the different gifts of the body engaged week after week after week, but just also in the course of life. That's one of the things that God uses to keep us from drifting, but to stand firm. A pastor friend of mine shared this story of a man that he knew um, who was then in his 30s, but he'd known him since he was young. And this man in his 30s had, had grown up in a Christian home. They'd gone to church when they were young. His parents had tried to open the word with him. But after he got to maybe 10 or 11, they just kind of drifted away from those practices. Didn't really go to church much. Didn't really open the word much. Still claimed to be a believer, but just wasn't really part of his life routine. Until he got to his 30s and started wrestling with big questions that he didn't have answers for. And he ended up kind of walking away from this faith that he sort of had a tenuous connection to because he didn't feel like there were good answers to his questions. And my friend challenged him. He said, you know, I don't think you're being honest with yourself. I think you're taking the questions of a 30-year-old and you're comparing them to the answers of a 10-year-old and you're not seeing good answers there. It's because he had drifted away from these things that God would use to continue to build him up. And so if you're maybe in that mode in your 20s, 30s, older, and find yourself questioning, one thing to think about is, have I continued to be rooted and built up in these things that God uses to help me stand firm? And maybe you have, and those questions are still there. We want to walk with you in that. But just be honest about whether you've been a part of these things that God uses to help you to stand firm, to, to build you up so that you're not tossed to and fro. Be on the alert. Stand firm. And then it says, act like men. Act like men. It's a phrase that refers to mature courage. And it's actually not comparing like acting like women to acting like men. It's comparing acting like a child to acting like a grown-up. Okay? So it's not like a, a diss on women here or something like that. It's talking about going from acting like a child to a grown-up that can have mature, solid courage. We see, and the reason I think that's what it's referring to, I'm going to head past some of these things, is because of phrases like this. We actually find several of these in 1 Corinthians, but 1 Corinthians 14, 20, where it says, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. It's contrasting childishness with maturity. So he's saying, be on the alert, stand firm, act like men, as in be courageous for truth. Part of the reason I think that's how it's being used there is because in many passages in the Old Testament, we find be strong and courageous together. And that word for courageous, the Greek translation of that, is the same word translated as act like men. And so as we get to the fourth imperative, act like men, be strong, that strength kind of ties in there. It's like what we would see in uh, passages, not on the screen here, but like Psalm 27, 14, where it says, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. 
Be strong and let your heart take courage. That's really these terms together. That last one, that fourth one there, be strong. Uh, it's in the passive, which means it's more like be strengthened. Be strong as you're strengthened. Be strengthened. It's like Philippians 4.13, a popular verse where it says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Right? And so he says, be strong as the Lord strengthens you. These great commands, four great commands. Couldn't you picture like a men's retreat on these four commands? Right? Be alert. Act like men. Right? We, go, we play paintball. We suit each other up. We dig into the word. We're like, like men. But do we move on to the fifth one? Look at the last one. Let all that you do be done in love. Isn't that a great companion phrase? Yes, we're to be alert, we're to be strong, we're to act like men. Let all that you do be done in love. That's the guardrails to these other commands. Because you could easily see how somebody would grab those commands and just run over people in arrogance and harshness because like i got to stand firm for truth, i got to act like a man. They don't let all that they do be done in love. Craig Blomberg, he he summarizes this so well. He says, love without strength deteriorates into mere sentimentality. Strength without love risks becoming tyrannical. Love without strength deteriorates into mere sentimentality. Strength without love risks becoming tyrannical. We need all of these commands, don't we? You might kind of lean towards those first four and you really value truth and sound doctrine, you want to hold firm to the faith, even in the face of opposition, you want to be strong, do you do that in love? On the other hand, you might love that last verse. Let all that you do be done in love. Man, you, you write that on the mirror, right? You want to get a coffee cup with that verse. But do you... Do you define that term the same way the Bible would define it? Or, or do you just take that to kind of justify a sentimentality and not wanting to ruffle any feathers or rock the boat and neglect the need to be strong and stand firm in the faith, to be courageous? We need all of that together. And it's not enough just to run over people with truth and then tag out in the end, hey, 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 I love you, bro. You know, just kind of as if just throwing that term makes it true. And why do we know that that's not enough? Well, because we're in chapter 16, and chapter 13 tells us exactly what love is, right? And it's not, it's very specifically not just our words. It's love is patient, love is kind, love is gentle, love does not brag, and on and on and on. And so when he says here now, let all that you do be done in love, it's encompassing all of that. Which do you tend to lack? And I want you to do some honest assessment. Do you tend to like grab onto those first four commands but overlook the need to love? Or do you really major on this passage on love but overlook sound doctrine and courage in the face of opposition? Are you stronger in one or the other? We need to actually be on the alert for that. When I began 1 Corinthians 11 months ago, 
There's a number of reasons I wanted to teach that book. A big part of it is because of those first four chapters, which if you recall, that was a long time ago, right? But if you recall, those first four chapters were all about unity in the body in, in, as opposed to division. And, and yes, there's multiple chapters on sexual ethics and on marriage and on the life of the body and on communion and on resurrection, but the longest section is on unity. And I think it's a message that we need to hear, not because our body was getting fractured by division, but because our culture is, and what happens in the culture can easily creep into the church. And so I wanted us to focus on what does it mean to be united around truth, and what a great ending to this book also to see that, that truth matters, but we need to practice it and hold firm to it in love. Well, let's wrap up. We'll wrap up by hitting these other commands a little more quickly. And so by wrap up, I mean kind of wrap up this book. Um, the next few verses go on to describe some believers who were particularly refreshing and serving. He lists them off here by name, passing on greetings, passing on greetings to them and from them. But, but as we read about that, we get some glimpses into, I think, healthy church life. He mentions here Stephanus and his household describes them as the first fruits of Achaia, meaning they were the, probably the first ones to come to Christ in this particular region. And look at what he says about them in the second half of verse 15. He says, They have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. They, he goes on to say, They help in the work and they labor. Verse 17, They supply what was lacking. Verse 18, They refreshed my spirit and yours. What a great description these who are ministering in the body. And he uses leadership-type language to describe how they're to respond to them without calling them maybe elders or pastors. But he says you're to respond to them with submission, but it's because of this labor that they're doing. So what we see is a New Testament pattern. We, we do see leadership in the local church. It's described, it's talked about, but it's rooted in the character and the service of the leader not just in some office that's placed on them. So we see, for example, in Hebrews 13, 7, remember those who led you, which appears to be what he's saying about Stephanus here, one who has led them, who spoke the word of God to you, considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. He points to their conduct and their faith that is deserving to be followed after. We're rightly concerned about the abuse of leadership because we hear stories about it all the time. And that's why it's so important for us to root leadership in character and in loving service, uh, not just in office or talent or something like that. What we should do is look for those that are already serving like this, which is, I think, what we see here. They're devoting themselves to service. We look for those that are already serving. We say they're already acting like a deacon. They're already acting like an elder. They're shepherding people. Let's give them that role. right? As opposed to saying, ah, this guy's kind of flaky, but maybe if we put him on the board, he'll grow up a little bit. That is a recipe for disaster, right? We look for those that are already acting like it, and then we say, boy, this seems like a great person to ask to serve in this uh, official capacity. So we get a little glimpse here, and then we get another glimpse at some other names, Prisca and Aquila. Look at verse 19. Aquila and Prisca, or sometimes Priscilla, greet you heartily in the Lord. 
with the church that is in their house. This was a husband and wife team that we see popping up over and over again in the New Testament. It's a husband and wife team that when Paul came to Corinth in Acts 18, he met them there. They were tent makers. He worked with them in that profession. So they had a job, but they were also making disciples. And they went with him from Corinth to Ephesus. And when they got to Ephesus, Prisca and Aquila, this husband and wife team, they met Apollos. And Apollos had uh, some spiritual interest. didn't seem like he fully understood the gospel. They led him to Christ and discipled him. And then he went on to become kind of a great servant on his own right. Uh, but then they had this church in their house. And that's what Paul's referring to here. He's writing from Ephesus, and he talks about the church that's meeting in their home. The next time we see them is in Romans. In Romans 16, they're now in Rome. So they've moved from Corinth to Ephesus, now to Rome. But again, they have a church in their house there. And then they come up again in 2 Timothy 4. It seems like they're probably back in Ephesus. But in all these places, wherever they move to, they're serving, and they're using the resources they have to bless and serve others. They're opening their home. It, it tells us they probably through this business they had of making tents, they were prospering and they had a home that could support people. So they opened it and they let people in and they taught. Maybe this is you. Maybe this is a way that you can serve. Maybe you're even relatively new here, but you think, gosh, God's given us a home and there's space and maybe we can open it up. Maybe there's a small group that could be hosted there. Uh, maybe God can use you in that way. You may have noticed, if you've been here, especially at this service, that there's just a lot of new faces uh, that have been coming. Some weeks here, some weeks not. As people are moving to the community, some are, have been in the community, but God is like drawing them to himself. And there's a need to engage and connect with people. And so in a few weeks here, we'll be starting up different small groups. And you might say, I can, I can jump into that, or I can help host something in my home. I can, I can open it up. That's a way that, like Priscilla and Aquila, you can use what God has given you to bless and minister to others. Five closing words after this, as it just kind of starts knocking through pretty quick statements that we find in lots of New Testament books at the end. Some closing words. We see a word of authenticity in verse 21. You might wonder, why does Paul say this? Verse 21, it says, This greeting is in my own hand. The rest of the book was probably written by a scribe. Paul dictated it, the scribe wrote it down. But he gets to this part and he writes it in his own hand. Why? Because there was concern about fake letters being circulated, claiming to be from him and bringing false teaching. I think it's, it's either First or Second Thessalonians. He, he warns about that. So he says here, this is... This is in my own hand. It was a way of authenticating the letter. So there's a word of authenticity. Verse 22, we see a word of warning. This may have caught you even as we read it. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. It's kind of a gut punch, isn't it? It's really the flip side, though, of what he says at the end of Ephesians. The end of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 24 Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an incorruptible love. Here he's giving the contrast. He says those who don't, they'll face God's judgment. And so it's a sober word. It's a sober warning. Don't misunderstand this. It says if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. As if you just have to kind of get to a sufficient level of affection for Christ and then and then he'll let you in. That's not the way that love is being used here. What the New Testament talks about is it uses terms like 1 Corinthians 15 of receiving Christ. 
John 3.16, of believing in Christ. And, and here I think he's using loving Christ in really that same idea. It's, it's just simply one who saw their need, their sin, responded to the gospel that's found in Christ, that substitution of Christ, his death for them, his resurrection proving that it happened. And they're saying, I'm going to cast myself completely upon this one. I'm going to turn from the sin that makes it necessary, trust in him. It's the one who loves him. But he says the one who does not do that is rejecting him and remains under God's judgment. Rather than receiving this grace that is extended and open, they're going to remain under this judgment. And it is a sober warning, friends. It is a sober warning. And we can't explain it away. We we can't tone it down. It, It ends there for a reason. It warns us about this. And there's that warning for you to come, if you have not, to come. This grace is available. The forgiveness is available. But to delay is essentially to reject if that delaying continues on. He says, come. There's a word of warning. And then there's a word of anticipation. A word of anticipation. And this anticipation is found in the word that here is just transliterated, brought over from the Aramaic, uh, where this phrase is found. It's Maranatha. And it simply means, come, Lord. It's a plea. It's a prayer. It's an anticipation of the coming, the return of Christ. That may be sometimes all that you can pray when life is particularly weighty. And you don't know what else to pray, but you just say, come, Lord. I'm ready. I want your return. I'm longing for your return. It's a word of anticipation. Verse 23, we find a word of grace. A word of grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. The unmerited, unearned favor, kindness. Most of these New Testament letters begin with grace and they end with grace. Grace to you, because that is where we live as believers. Not the treadmill of our own efforts, but the security of his grace. And then a word of affection, verse 24. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Paul ends this challenging letter with a reminder of his affection for these believers. These believers that... Especially if you've been with us these 11 months, you know what I mean. He, he doesn't pull back punches. He presses in hard. He challenges. He corrects. We've had to walk through all those together. And yet at the end here he says, friends, I, I love you. Don't doubt that. We see, this vertic- we see this horizontal affection because of God's affection for us. We, we love because he loved us. And that ought to be the mindset of our church too as we look for to have everything that we do be done in love. Let's pray.